0: the way that this is written down, and we believe it corresponds exactly to what happened, is that they don't believe. They have no faith, even though Jesus himself had told them. Welcome to the Walk in Truth Minisode, A Step Closer, where Pastor Michael Lance and others on the Walk in Truth team discuss topics and questions about life from a Christian perspective. You'll also get a chance to get to know the team. Now, let's get into today's topic. Well, welcome back to our mini-sode on the Resurrection. This is Pastor Michael Lance. This is Walk in Truth. And this is actually a, another aspect of our ministry called A Step Closer. And we just want to bless you with more depth and insight that we can we can give you in our normal format. And I have a special guest with me, Joe Kelly. We started a conversation on the Resurrection, Joe, and I'll tell you what, it's thrilling to talk about resurrection. And, uh, just there, I mean, we, we started the first segment, um, you know, we were just touching on kind of some of the fundamental definitions of terms and we could go, I think all day and all night on this topic, but it's good to have you with us, Joe, and welcome back to walk in truth.
1: Glad to be back. We, uh, we just began to scratch. Yes, we did. And so, uh,
0: I think people are going to benefit from more of the dialogue we were defining our terms uh, in the first uh, go-around in terms of the resurrection, and we talked a little bit about a definition of resurrection, the raising of a clinically dead body. James mentions that the spirit, you know, the body without the spirit is dead. Uh, and we're going to talk about James a little bit more as we get into evidence for the resurrection. But let's talk about the evidence. So we've, de- we've defined our terms Let's start with the biblical evidence. So obviously the four Gospels and several of the letters of the New Testament have as their focus, at least a portion of the focus, um, the resurrection itself. And we can think of so many times in church, maybe at a sunrise service where we heard one of those Gospel accounts. Let's talk a little bit about those Gospel accounts. So we have four Gospel writers Each of them deal with the resurrection appearances um, or an account of the resurrection. One thing that we know is that early on Resurrection Sunday morning, there were women that arrived at the tomb and so forth. Uh, Talk a little bit about uh, the power of that testimony, the fact that it was women that first saw
1: the resurrected Christ. Very, very important. So I, I would like to make a comment on that. But I would also maybe, like, if we can take a even a step back and give our audience, because here I am, you introduced me last time as uh, an apologist, so I'm always thinking in regards to what does a non-believer think? What could help them answer some of their questions? So right. I think about what constitutes credible evidence. Yes. So yes, you and I believe the Gospels are credible evidence for many reasons, and... uh the book of Mark in particular being probably the, most, the earliest written of the Gospels, as far as the women uh, would go. So most New Testament historians, uh, the vast majority of them, regardless of their view um, on supernatural versus natural, uh, I would say those that believe that the resurrection is as described and those that reject the resurrection account, what they don't reject are certain facts, as laid out in the Gospels. Right. One of those facts is that the the tomb was discovered empty by the women followers of right. Jesus. And why is that? Why would that m- make sense that it's that it's an authentic description of what happened? Because here here's the idea in in first century uh, in in, Ju- in uh, uh, Judaism. In this Greek slash Roman culture, uh, women's testimony was not regarded on par with men's testimony. Yes, and so because of that, the charge has always been: well, the gospels were written later. How later? There's a there's a dispute on how much later. Now, those who were writing the gospels, if we're to believe the the more liberal scholars, or those who reject the actual resurrection. They would say that the writers were manipulating a storyline. They were yes. creating a narrative, trying to push this idea that there was an actual resurrection. If that was the case, they would have never described the discovery of the empty tomb uh, uh, fr- as women discovering it. They would have used, th- they would have used somebody that was uh, a lawyer somebody who was within the religious leadership. They would have used somebody whose testimony meant the most. Something like the high priest. Something like the high priest discovered the tomb is empty. Not several women whose testimony was not even considered on par with men's.
0: And that's my understanding that they wouldn't even really be able to testify. So if you were cooking up a story and you wanted to convince people that the story was true or they should buy it, you would never write it this way.
1: I wouldn't write it this way, and I wouldn't say my uh, f- my five-year-old grandson <laughs> discovered the empty tomb yeah. either. Guess what, Grandpa? That's not the way you would do it. And on top of that, so this is a
0: line of evidence, the women being the first to experience the risen Christ in the empty tomb.
1: And that goes to uh, the criteria that historians use yes. when determining whether um, there is a line of evidence that's credible or reliable. Yes. And so they have, these, they have this criteria called uh, the criteria of embarrassment. So if something is, is that, that's written down reflects poorly on what is being described or what is being reported on, if that reflects poorly, that lends to its credibility. Yes. Because normally we say, well, the writers are biased. Uh, regardless, we're not just talking about the New Testament. Any writer's biased— they want to get their point of view across. But what shows their objectivity or attempt to be objective is when they include information or facts that reflect poorly on themselves or the narrative they're trying to push.
0: Yes, and and so let's take a step further towards that. So when the women go to the apostles, who are supposed to be the brave followers of Christ, right. they say the the women have lost their minds, to paraphrase. They do. They're just crazy tales. They They don't believe it, which is another embarrassment because, of course, the the documents go on to say that Christ is risen and it becomes crystal clear. But the the way that this is written down, and we believe it corresponds exactly to what happened, is that they don't believe. They have no faith, even though Jesus himself had told them. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to beat me up, scourge me, crucify me, and I'm going to rise again. And yet even Peter and the others don't believe the women's testimony.
1: They don't believe him. Like you said, that's another embarrassing factor. And if you and I were trying to create a story to convince people of something that we knew wasn't true, we certainly wouldn't have told it that way. That's right. And
0: that's what people, you know, they the the word legend has been used, right? That they this is just legend that, you know, they wrote many, many years later, but that's not how they would have written
1: it. Certainly not if, how they, would if have it they
0: were cooking up a story. So here we are, we're talking about lines of evidence. And one of the, th- one of the phrases that uh, scholars use is the, the idea of multiple attestation, right. simply meaning that multiple people are, are attesting to the fact that they had an encounter with the risen Christ. Um, so we talk about the women being a strong line of evidence. You Use the idea of the the embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about one individual that uh, was apparently a bit embarrassed by his brother or half brother. That's James. So talk a little bit about how uh, maybe even non Christian scholars would see
1: James. That's a. This is another uh, interesting fact that is accepted by scholars across the board, regardless of position of the resurrection, is that James, being the half-brother of Jesus and rejecting who Jesus was throughout the New Testament, ends up being one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Right. And in fact, we have uh, historical... credible evidence that James ended up dying for his faith. So James was converted. Yes. That's the key. James was converted from unbelief to belief, from thinking his brother was just out of his mind and no different than uh, than a, his flesh and blood to believing that Jesus was the son of God. And that that this is why historians accept this this report also about James is because of who he was and the way he rejected yes. his own brother yes. to now accepting him post resurrection.
0: And later he will call himself a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ he calls- as he writes his own letter. He's also in the first Corinthians fifteen record, and let me just pause here to say that this is a step closer and this is a ministry of walk in truth, and this is just a way we're doing a mini on the resurrection. Pastor Michael here with Joe Kelly. And this is a way for you to get a little bit more uh, depth on something like the resurrection. We're going to be doing more of this in this kind of format. And we're going to have to wrap up this second episode here. But I want to move down the line of multiple attestation and just continue to talk about James, the half-brother of Jesus. The reason he's called half-brothers is because, of course, Jesus was virgin-born. right. And Mary and Joseph did have other children after Jesus, though that is controversial with some of our Roman Catholic brethren or friends. Um, But let's put that aside for a second and talk about James. So James is listed in 1 Corinthians 15, Joe, and it says that Jesus in verse 7 uh, appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So let's just talk about that appearance to James. I don't know that we have anything more outside of this reference, uh, in terms of detail of that appearance. But it specifically mentioned that he appeared to James. You began to tell us a little bit about James, but why do you think that Jesus appeared specifically to James, which seems like it was an individual uh, resurrection appearance?
1: Well, the fact that we just have this one accounting of it, I don't think causes, there's no reason to, uh, for that to uh, cause any doubt, because what we we'll, I think we'll talk about maybe uh, one of our episodes coming up is this this formula that Paul uses here in First Corinthians 15 and and how far back it dates and, yes. and things like that. But as far as James goes, number one, how wonderful and beautiful that is that Jesus would appear to his brother, yes, in a, such a gracious way basically calling him as a follower, yes. the, the, the Lord of the universe. I could just imagine the, the the scene or the moment and James just coming to the realization that Jesus was who he claimed to be and and how guilty he must have felt for rejecting him all this time, yes. probably out of jealousy and things like that. We know how relationships can go, sibling rivalry and things like that. So here we have uh, the beautiful grace of our Lord extending uh, his love to James, James accepting Jesus as the risen Savior, then becoming a leader in the church, and the point, as the point I made before, he was converted. Yes. He would have never died for his faith. We have secular historians like Josephus who refer to James having been killed for what he believed. Mm-hmm. He was killed for his faith. He would have never died for something he didn't believe to be true. He had an encounter with the risen Lord.
0: Amen. Well, this uh, second minisode on the resurrection, we've begun to walk down this this uh, track of multiple attestation. We've talked about James, and uh, we're going to talk about Saul on our next broadcast. And and I'm going to get. I want us to stick in uh, to 1 Corinthians fifteen and talk about its origins and how powerful it is. But this is a step closer. This is a ministry of walking truth. Pastor Michael here with Professor Joe Kelly. We'll call him the professor because he is professorial and he's an apologist, which simply means a great defender of the historic Christian faith. Now, next time on the third minisode, uh, we will get into this 1 Corinthians 15 passage and its implications. And we'll be doing that next time. Hey, if you want to reach out to us, it's contact at walkintruth.com. That's contact at walkintruth.com. Send us an email Hey, make sure you subscribe to the podcast because when you do, you'll be notified of the next episode coming out or mini-sode, as it were, and uh, you'll be able to get into it and share it with friends and let people know what you're learning and be more equipped yourself to uh, defend the hope that you have. We'll see you right here next time. God bless.
1: Thanks for listening to A Step Closer. Let
0: us know your thoughts on today's topic. You can email us at contact at walkintruth.com. You can also let us know a topic or question you'd like us to answer and discuss. Again, email us at contact at walkintruth.com.